So welcome uh, to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm here with Dan Fishman, uh, who's a fellow traveler in the world of sort of theoretical and clinical psychology. Uh, Dan and I have been collaborating together. He invited me to do a paper for one of a, what a, a very powerful journey he puts together on pragmatic case studies. He's a professor at Rutgers, and I think we share a lot in common in relationship to the field. So it's a delight to have an opportunity to come in and uh, have you uh, share some ideas with us, Dan. So thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So, um, you know, uh, we're both clinicians and you could probably relate to this, uh, but one of the things I like to do is just sort of help the audience get a flavor for where you are and sort of like, so what brings you in today? <laughs> Less on the sort of a clinic side, but more like, hey, can you tell us a little bit about your story and what brings you to what you think is important and what you're trying to uh, do and contribute to the field? So let's just talk a little bit about your story and how you came to be uh, in this position. Well, when I was in college, uh, I majored in philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I've always had very strong philosophical interests. Mm. And my father told me, well, you're not going to be able to open a philosophy store. You better be doing something more practical. All right. So I went over into psychology and then got a degree in clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Where did you go? Where did you get your degree? Uh, Harvard Department of Social Relations. Oh, okay. Huh. Which aspired to be interdisciplinary across psychology uh, sociology and anthropology. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, Fascinating. So a lot can be seen by the kind of dissertation I had. Okay. I had a dissertation in which I was uh, testing the idea that um, uh, individual women in small groups, their sociability Mm-hmm. would be correlated with their need for affiliation mm. as you're on the TAT. This was the work of David McClellan. Right, sure. And so that represented uh, having to look for some hypothesis mm-hmm. that was already established. I couldn't just explore what people were like. Um, and... Uh, I had to operationalize these variables. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up with a, this was the time when uh, computers were in very large rooms and you just <laughs> gave the the operator a set of cards and you came back the next morning. But what you would huh. get is a correlation matrix. So let's okay. say you yeah, had 100 variables uh-huh. across the columns and 100 in the rows, and you saw what everything correlated with everything else. Right. And I sort of worked off that, even though there was a part of me that said that this is not right, but no one, I had no supervision on this. So the right. fact of just sort of searching for results in a variable Mm -hmm. oriented world was something I ended up doing. And I um, uh, was able to publish in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which was the Mm -hmm. premier journal at that time. That is, amen. That's impact factor. (laughs) So what this meant was this represented to me where the field was, Mm -hmm. what it valued and um, it really didn't make sense to me. It it felt uh, 
First, the fact of just searching for these relationships. Um, and um, having to only deal with quantitative data. The whole focus was on quantitative data, not on the, the qualitative interest of it. Um, and I then went on to, because I was somewhat turned off by this, uh, my first uh, major job was as director of program evaluation. Mm. So program evaluation, this was with community mental health centers, which were just starting at that time. Right. And the idea of program evaluation is that you see whether individual programs are working. Mm -hmm. You're not looking at general laws. You're looking right. at, does this program work? It was very pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with me. So mm -hmm. I realized that uh, this was something that did make philosophical, intellectual sense to me. Okay. Um, and then I later um, generalized that to a uh, technological model. This was before I came up with the idea of the label pragmatic. It was a technological paradigm uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, with an emphasis on... Uh, valuing or, or judging psychological research based on its pragmatic results, not mm -hmm. on whether it confirms a theory. Uh -huh. And uh, I work with a uh, colleague, Bill. Were, were you using, sorry to interrupt for a sec, just curious when, uh, you know, obviously William James, you know, father of American psychology is tied to pragmatism we're using pragmatism in any way in that sense, or really just sort of really grounded literally in the pragmatic consequences? Well, it was interesting that um, when, at that time, I, I didn't think of pragmatism, I wasn't using the term, when I finally okay. realized that the tradition I wanted to tap into mm -hmm was pragmatism, and that's because I started to read uh, postmodern literature, mm -hmm. and they use the okay. term neopragmatic, mm. and I read a lot of Richard Rorty, who made a lot ah, of sense okay. to me, and yep, that's yep, neopragmatic. Yep. And then I realized I was a philosophy major in college, but everything was about philosophy of science and logical positivism mm. and, and uh, linguistic philosophy. Mm -hmm. And nothing, I never even heard the word pragmatism. Uh, so okay. um, mm -hmm. it's strange that not only to go back to pragmatism, but I, my program in clinical psychology was located in a building called William James Hall. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> you know, there, there was that, that that uh, whole tradition, but as Rorty and others have pointed out, the 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 movement in philosophy to uh, linguistics and um, uh, and the positive positivistic strains uh, left William James and John Dewey um, in disfavor. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. And they were rediscovered 
I don't know, maybe in the 70s or so, I, I read a couple of books about them. There's a, a, a well-known biography of um, uh, of John Dewey that I read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they have now come back, but they yep. were out of disfavor, which okay. shows the changes in the intellectual atmosphere at the yep. time, just mm -hmm. as... Um, until the late 50s, everything was behavioristic in psychology. Right. Mm -hmm. And that really upset me because you, you couldn't talk about anything unless it was observable. And uh, I think it's hard for young people to understand today, since we live in a much more pluralistic mm -hmm. uh, discipline, how constrained it was at that time yeah and um the first major course i had was in learning theory about working with animals right so all of this led really to um i found this all very dissatisfying uh and i think at heart i'm a very pragmatic person mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um uh, general theories correlation matrices um, and battles between general theories uh, were very dissatisfying to me. And I kept asking myself, what um, is of pragmatic value that psychologists uh -huh. Uh -huh. do? And in the early 80s, I, I wrote with uh, my colleague, Bill Nayer, an article in the American Psychologist called Psychology in the 80s, Who Will Buy? Mm -hmm. That yeah, the fact if, 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 <laughs> if psychology is going to be supported by society, we have to do right. something of value. Yep. So I, when I've been thinking about how to present this more generally, uh, I think a good place to start is with Newtonian physics. Okay. And um, in the late 1800s, when organized psychology split off from philosophy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, and there's a nice quote from Leahy about this historically. Psychologists glommed on to Newton's model yep. of science because Newton um, came up with a few general laws that were so powerful. We're still using them today to get to the moon, space travel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, uh, the uh, core characteristics of the Newtonian model that the psychologists took away were one, doing experiments, controlled experiments, where you control right. data. Second, where you had uh, a few variables, uh -huh. like force equals mass times acceleration, a few variables, so you operationalize them. Yep. And then third, it was quantitative. Yep. And there was a belief that um, there were very general laws in the world and the universe 
that could be captured by um, formulas. Uh -huh. That was their their nature. Yep. And if you think about um, pragmatically what Newton accomplished, this tremendous variety, if you think of the physical world and how complex it is in all its qualities, and he was able to abstract these general laws. Yep. So this was really very attractive to psychologists. Mm -hmm. And so those aspects of general laws, quantification, and um, uh, experimentation yep. really were at the heart of what I started to think were, were wrong. Yes. Uh, so there are a couple of things that were basically wrong with that. One was that psychologists... I'll just, can I just pause you there and jump in for a second? Because the Good. book yeah. I just wrote, okay, basically says... Uh, elaborates uh, from my vantage point on exactly this point. Um, and it says men's knowledge, modern empirical natural science, which has the Galileo to Newtonian structure gets institutionalized. And we're trying to jam psychology into that. And, and we just pull the epistemology of that off of the experimentation, the observation, the measurement, which basically is why, by the way, we're going to pull behavior as a concept and experimentation on observable, quantifiable structures. And essentially, so we're, we see the success there, and then we're going to jam the whatever it is that psychology then is that, and ultimately we're going to become defined by the methodological right, process right. rather than right. the uh, ontology of human persons in conversation. <laughs> exactly. get, you know. So anyway, exactly. I totally support what you're saying there. I like to say sort of we have on the one hand, we have the Newtonian ontology and epistemology of measurement. And then we have also Kant coming along and say, well, actually everything's in the category of mind. And we get this sort of like really bizarre category of mind philosophy stuff coupled to a Newtonian ontology and, and then a complete absence of actually anything synthetic that actually makes sense of us hanging out on you talking with Greg. <laughs> right. And so anyway. It makes uh, pragmatic sense because ultimately, uh, if we talk about clinical psychology and psychotherapy specifically, which is the journal I have, I'm, right. I'm actually, it's, it's, to me, it's a representative of applied psychology. Right. The question of what is the pragmatic payoff of all this stuff rather than, totally. yes, it's pragmatically helpful because it gives professors um, <laughs> publications and promotions, but really- <laughs> Impact factor. <laughs> So one of the major things here is the fight over what is the basic uh, subject matter in reality of what psychology is about. And I think in your um, Utah little diagram, um, it's very clear, as I see it, that there are four qualitatively distinct um, realms of reality. One yep. is matter, mm -hmm. uh, life, mind, and uh, culture. So when I was being socialized into psychology, um, the, the uh, independent nature and and epistemological importance of conscious experience was not 
there. It was all operationalizing that to variables. And it was the variables. Um, the uh, American Psychological Association, which can be seen as the beginning of organized psychology yep. in America, started in 1892. Yep. It wasn't until 2011, 119 years later. Is, is G. Stanley Hall, is he the first person in Berkeley? Maybe He not. might have been anyway, the first sense. president. He certainly was one of the early founders. founders. He's certainly founders. Yep. Go ahead. So interestingly, John Dewey and William James were presidents mm -hmm. of the American Psychological Association. Mm -hmm. um, but their, their, uh, impact um, faded during the era of behaviorism until oh. later. Yeah. So um, it wasn't until 2011 that the American Psychological Association recognized the legitimacy of qualitative data, qualitative research. I mean, think of that. It's rather mind boggling <laughs> that it took all that time for them to to admit it's like this big family secret that you don't want anyone to see that we actually deal with messy stuff we don't deal with 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 the physical world <laughs> so, uh, I guess, right, you know yeah. all right yes there it is come to jesus <laughs> right <laughs> so as you know um you know, there's now a society of uh, qualitative inquiry, SQUIP, and they yep. have a wonderful journal. Uh, though bizarrely, um, I don't know, are you a member of Division 5, where it's located? I have a couple of friends over there, but no, I'm actually, I, I'm I'm sort of uh, pretty far out there these days. <laughs> I'm just sort of wandering in various orbits, so no, not really. <laughs> well, okay, so they're in Division 5. So what APA did... Instead of saying, okay, we have 55 other uh, divisions, let's just give qualitative psychology a division. That's not going to hurt us. We have all these other variations. No, we're going to put in division five, which started out as was quantitative methods. So now division five is called quantitative and qualitative methods. And I get as a member of the division um I, I get the quantitative journal beside the qualitative journal mm -hmm. and it is pure mathematics mm -hmm. it's bizarre that this it, it, it it's side by side with, mm -hmm. with qualitative right. research so that's so psychology is still uh having to get used to the fact that that we can deal with qualitative experience per se Exactly. Totally. Um, so that's number one. Sort of my discovery that, that you could talk about qualitative experience, really meaning uh, consciousness, mm -hmm. immediacy, lived experience. Mm -hmm. And then the the next step for me was um, reading the postmodern philosophers like Rorty. Mm. And uh, there are a number of articles in the 80s about social constructionism. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Uh, in the American Psychologist, not only Ken Gergen, but uh, right. Sandra Scar wrote one. Yep. 
And um, they present the idea that uh, not only is uh, conscious experience something that should be taken as real and important in itself, but in some ways, that's the only thing that's real in mm-hmm. a sense. Uh, and I guess this goes back to the uh, idealistic uh, philosophers like uh, Barclay. Um, we know we have conscious experience and then our ways of interpreting it mm-hmm. are social constructs. Yep. And I know this might be new to you, but I, I have a quote from uh, Richard Rorty showing how Newton is really dealing with social constructs. So I'll read this to you and see what you think. Yeah, lovely. Well, I like Richard Rorty. I, I don't read a lot of his stuff, but I, I mean, okay. go okay. ahead. Let's see if I... See if, if I, this resonates. All right. Newton discovered and subsequent centuries have amply confirmed that you get much better predictions by thinking of things as masses of particles blindly bumping against each other than by thinking of them as Aristotle thought of them, animistically, teleologically, and anthropologically. They also discovered that you get a better handle on the universe by thinking of it as finite and cold and comfortless than by thinking of it as finite, homey, planned, and relevant to human concerns. Mm -hmm. These types of discoveries are the basis of modern these types of discoveries, meaning Newtonian physics, yep. are the basis of modern technological civilization, but they do not tell us anything about the language which nature itself uses about the book of nature. Mm. So uh, Rorty is saying that even Newtonian physics, which we think of as sort of the foundation of, of science and reality, is itself uh, a social construct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you okay with that? Um, it's a particular kind of social construct. I mean, okay. our scientific knowledge, I mean, you talk is pretty clear on this. You talk says, hey, we build propositional knowledge sets called justification systems. Yeah. Newtonian okay. theory is a justification system for sure. Right. Okay. Um, the question is what, so that's an ontoepistemological justification system. That's the theory, Newtonian theory. Right. There's questions about what does that mean in relationship to reality, okay? Um, right, right. When you look at quantum theory and, and general relativity, you can see very clearly that a lot of what Newtonian reality is was a projected a set of assumptions that turned out to be wrong. So we thought we had a true version of reality, but actually the truth sits in our theories that is socially presumed that then yes. there's a different reality. Um, yeah. So that is totally true. It's also the case that science is a different kind of social construction uh, than, say, politeness in, in company, okay? Yeah. So, that, in other words, there's a different kind of, I think somebody in the whole science wars, um, and, and and I can't remember whether it was Alan Sokol himself in the science wars, when he was critiquing postmodern, and said, hey, the truth of an electron rotating around a proton is a different kind of truth than than the polite company to put the fork on the left side so social construction means a wide variety of different things. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we need to be clear about in what way is it a social construction completely, meaning it's basically whole cloth. We get together, create a pragmatic reality right. so we can get through right. the world versus some sort of 
connection or gripping function to some other kind of reality. And you talk gives different ways of framing it, but absolutely all of our, um, if you and I are talking about the way the world is, we are in a socially constructed system of justification, which is different than the way the world is. Yeah. And so that's sorting that shit out is really, really key. Uh, and, and I think that we're, we can do better than we've done in the past for sure in getting clear about that. Uh, so if you look at where physics and especially astrophysics has gone since Newton, mm -hmm. um, when, if you think of Newton as the most down to earth, literally, um, mm -hmm. uh, hard, immutable science, if you look at the theories not just particle physics, which you're looking at, at uh, well, yeah, of course, particle physics, where what we think of as solid and substance is really air or space. But if you think of the nature of those theories and multiple universes and string theory, it's as if um, uh, there's a book I've, uh, I sometimes uh, quote about this, um in in which it's almost as if if the physicists have become more literary than uh some of uh other scientists so if you look at the um say string theory uh it is so fanciful in its own way and so detached from conscious experience because it's all high-level mathematics. So, um, yes, so we're into con social constructionism. So once we're into social constructionism, as you sort of implied, how do we value the social constructs? If we can't say, well, some of our propositions are just the truth about the world, it is the it is the in Rorty's sense, the language of reality. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Mm -hmm. How do we decide um, which ones are of value? And we can use the term validity to say they are mm -hmm. of value. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, to me, where pragmatism comes in. Right. Mm -hmm. So why is Newtonian physics... Even even if it is just a social construction, as Rorty says, uh -huh. we still greatly value it because of its pragmatic capacity. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And if you see what has happened in um, electronics and uh -huh. computers and uh -huh. Uh -huh. making devices smaller and smaller, that's all to me about pragmatics. It's not... Yep. The, the, the crucial question is not, are the concepts that computer designers are using really ontologically correct? Yep. No one asks that. They just say, you know, right. the, the, the uh, iPhone 16 is going to be much better than the 14. Maybe I should get that because it's going to do more, totally. et cetera. So that's about pragmatism. So mm -hmm. taking pragmatism then, 
in a sense, I've I've touched on the two aspects of uh, the term I've used: pragmatic case study. Right. Okay. One is the case study comes from the study of immediate um, lived experience. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that uh, traditionally psychology has looked for hypotheses for general laws mm -hmm. and uh, in a book I wrote in uh, 1999 I called for turning psychology upside down starting not with the general laws which are constructs but what is the most uh, real stuff that we have which is yep. experience so it is the the um context based um actual cases of uh whatever we think we can accomplish as psychologists totally our ultimate value is what we can contribute to society mm -hmm uh as applied psychologists and um that then starts with the case study because mm -hmm. uh if someone is a great psychotherapist or just a competent psychotherapist that's going to be reflected in their actual cases mm -hmm. so we then find that the actual cases of what psychologists do in, in particular situations are uh, um, a very high value and we should capture those. What we usually do is we give summaries of them so we can talk about our theories and we use the cases to confirm the theories uh, rather than saying, here are the cases, this is what happened. Huh? And in fact, part of writing up a case as uh, it's designed, and I'll get to that a little later, um, is to describe what actually happened as descriptively as possible, not right. using technical jargon. Mm -hmm. so the case that you wrote someone could come along and take the actual uh, clinical interactions and say, well, here are, here's an alternative explanation of why. Uh -huh. So there's a separation of theory uh -huh. from description, even though one could argue technically those are, you can never have pure description. We always have right. language, et cetera. There's a, there's a very important relative difference between those two. Exactly, 100%. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so then we have the those data and we have that case. And then we can ask... Um, And the question always asked about case studies, well, how can you generalize? Okay, you understand that case, that happened. But mm -hmm. if that knowledge is unique to the to those 
Absolutely. individuals involved in it, then we mm -hmm. haven't really contributed to helping anyone else. Mm -hmm. And there are two ways to develop generalized knowledge from mm -hmm. case studies. One is through induction of looking across case studies uh -huh. and some people call that metasynthesis uh -huh. and deriving themes. Uh -huh. And you'll see that also in the, the qualitative research literature right. where they'll give interviews to 30 people and, and derive themes. Uh, and the second way is case-based reasoning, uh -huh. which is... <laughs> using past cases to guide us in present actions. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you think of what happens as a psychotherapist gains experience, the highly experienced psychotherapist is in a therapy situation and something occurs and they have a choice point. And therapy mm -hmm. can, of course, be seen as a whole series of choice points. What do you do with these choice points? The difference between the experienced therapist and the novice therapist is that the experienced therapist has their own personal database mm -hmm. of experiences. And they will flash through that database um, to select similar situations. Mm -hmm. They remember similar situations mm -hmm. and um, that's how they respond. So it's mm -hmm. really a type of case-based reasoning. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that case-based reasoning is also used for um, computer problems. Mm. When, when people call into computer um uh, consultation services, and they'll say, I have this problem. Mm -hmm. One way to do it is to put in that problem mm -hmm. and to look at all the other situations where their problem occurred and then to hone mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And actually, with today's artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. that really seems to be the way it works. If you ask it to write an essay about mm -hmm. X, it will look at millions of documents and just start matching mm. to, to your topic. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so it is a kind of case-based uh, reasoning mm. that's going on. Mm. <clears throat> um, so that's the second kind of knowledge. Yep. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, what becomes important then is to develop large databases mm -hmm. of case studies. That's why um, mm. uh, I, I want to keep publishing case studies and I want other right. people to publish case studies because the more case studies we have, mm. um, the more that we can do these two kinds of um, <clears throat> generalizations, we can mm -hmm. we can do inductive reasoning, and we can help the clinician. Because if you're a clinician and you have a particular 
problem or issue that you're dealing with with your client, mm -hmm. ideally you should be able to go to chat GPT mm. and say, you know, mm -hmm. to the expert psychotherapist database, uh, <laughs> what can I do in this situation with all these parameters? Because it's mm -hmm. always in context, right? Of course. And by putting artificial intelligence can handle the parameters. Um, <clears throat> so that I think that there's a lot of potential for the pragmatic mm -hmm. case study. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> now there's another piece of it that I think is important, which is that uh, as you're familiar with the case studies that we have in, in the journal, all follow Donald Peterson's discipline inquiry yep. model. Mm -hmm. And Don Peterson's discipline inquiry model is in its most general sense, a way of showing the relationship between the, the theoretical constructs mm -hmm. in the case and the, the rich detailed clinical interactions that take place in right. the case. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you remember back in 1957, uh, Kronbach and Meal wrote about the nomological net. I'm well right. aware of the nomological net. You know, the uh, nomological net. So our friend, the nomological net, really um, fits into this whole conversation because it shows what is the relationship between our constructs mm -hmm. and our observations. Mm -hmm. And um, in this latest version I have, there are, you, you see the constructs floating above uh -huh. the observations, and then there are arrows between the constructs and the observations, and among the observations, and among the constructs. Uh, and then there so are three... I'll just pause you right there just a little bit. So right behind me, a little tree of life. This is the meme flower. That's metaphysical, empirical. Metaphysical, meaning the concepts and categories. Empirical, okay. meaning the bottom-up observations and the intersection between those uh, relations. Oh, so oh, that terrific. nominological net is actually uh, connected to the meme flower behind me. <laughs> uh, mean is stands for... Meme, uh, as in it stands for metaphysical, empirical. And actually, oh. there's a big flower in the middle. That's the overarching sort of our collective understanding of what yeah. is an observation relative yeah. to the concept. And then there are little meme flowers around it. That's each one of us. So it's Dan and Greg is a little one. And then together, yeah. we're doing pragmatic case studies as a collective. That's the big one. So it represents yeah, okay. a dialectical relationship between our collective understanding of concepts, categories, and empirical data, and our individual experience of concepts and categories, empirical data in relation. That's what the mean flower represents. Okay, great. So I, I think what the common theme that we're seeing is so important is recognizing the difference between uh, the level of, of um, immediate lived experience, of consciousness, mm -hmm. of moment-to-moment -moment things, mm -hmm. uh, and of the sort of bumpiness of physical reality. Uh, at the same time, all these, these um, ideas and theories and language that we have to, uh, to make sense of it, to understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so Don Peterson's equivalent of the nomological net 
is the diagram I might have sent to you, and it really creates the categories that I took and <clears throat> and placed in your um, the case study that you wrote up. So uh -huh. you, you start out with a guiding conception because the right. the the therapist has a guiding conception. So just for people to listen, just one of the things that connected Dan and I recently is I wrote up a case a while ago on Maggie Nelson on a, on a case uh, that I did. I put it in psychology today. We had been bantering back and forth about doing it. And Dan reached out to me well, maybe a year ago or something. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then he was like, hey, I really want you know bring this forward. And, uh, and I definitely wanted to. I really appreciate the opportunity. So we're back and forth. And we're now I've now submitted that. And this brought us back together. And it's one of the reasons we're here today people don't know that background but that's the so i have an impress or under review paper on maggie nelson the case i did a while ago so that's the context of which uh our little journey is intersected and so anyway just for people listening i want to give them back background um one of the ways in which i frame this i have a little uh some introductory comments is uh those who know your work know you start with the Big Bang. That's about as as far back and as big and dramatic as you can begin with. Uh, <clears throat> so the question is, how do you get from the Big Bang to an individual client with a particular and really dramatically challenging problem and have an impact on, on that individual? And it's the um what i thought was <clears throat> very uh uh special and challenging in in your work was to how to go from the big bang to the individual client and fill in those spaces um so in peterson's model you start out with a guiding conception some general theory that you bring and uh because that theory can uh, come from different traditions, the cases in the journal are multi-theoretical. Yep. Some are cognitive behavioral, some are psychoanalytic, some are mixtures of those, some are integrative, experiential. Um, that's the guiding conception. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you bring that guiding conception then to a detailed assessment of the individual. So you want to know who the individual is and what are their problems in descriptive language. Yep. And then you come up with a case formulation. And the case formulation is really a <clears throat> mini version of the guiding conception as it applies to the assessment data uh -huh. so you really have a little theory of the person in that case formulation and particularly yep. a theory of the problems that brought the person into the therapy yep from that formulation uh and in the context of your guiding conception you then develop a treatment plan uh -huh. which is how you expect to um treat this person and how the guiding conception gives you a rationale for that uh again in the context of what the person actually brought in as they're presenting problems uh -huh. 
And now we're at the point of the course of therapy. The course of therapy is what actually happened. Yep. Uh, if you were there and you were observing, what would that mm -hmm. data all look like? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Now, instead of just taking the person all the videotapes, mm -hmm. uh, we have the therapist typically write up the case, but the case is generally in a kind of blow by blow. We want to yep. know what happened moment to moment <clears throat> with an emphasis on uh, the actual transactions um, in common language, not in technical jargon. Mm -hmm. If the therapist wants to comment during the therapy, that goes in brackets or parentheses. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what my thinking was here. This is mm -hmm. what I was concerned about. This is how it relates back to formulation. Sometimes therapists like to do that. That's fine. Mm -hmm. As long as the uh, the levels of analysis are clear and separated. Mm -hmm. Historically, <clears throat> um, case studies were favored by psychoanalytic uh, sure. therapists. And if you look at those case studies, and there's actually an article about this by Stan Messer in the Pragmatic Journal, um, they mix up the theory mm. and the observation mm -hmm. so that they will interpret the observation as they're making the observation, and therefore mm -hmm. there's no way of um, telling what is, is interpretation and what is more descriptive. And in fact, to me, one of the best ways to judge the effectiveness of the course of therapy section is whether a commentator can make an alternative interpretation. Hmm. Uh -huh. So when we publish, as uh, Greg knows, we have the target case study. Uh -huh. We then have two or three commentaries. Uh -huh. In response to the commentaries. Mm -hmm. So in, for example, um, the case study that was just published. Right, one just came out, right? I think I saw a notice. It just came out, right. Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. Oh, is that by Diana Foster or somebody else? No, it's by a student who combined that. Okay. It was an integrative student who combined it with the concept of exposure and showed that what is happening in AEDP is, is that the, the uh, client is being exposed to a new kind of interpersonal relationship, an interpersonal relationship that was previously threatening, but because the, the therapist in AEDP is able to reach out and establish such a strong bond Mm. They're able to expose the the um, the client to new sorts of situations, new sorts of right. situations. So mm -hmm. it's sort of a mixture of that, you know, transference relationship from dynamic to the mm -hmm. experiential aspect that Diana Fosha emphasizes to a behavioral concept. Because this student yep. started as a behaviorally oriented uh, uh, clinician, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. took a course in short-term dynamic therapy, learned ADP, had an integrative uh, supervisor, also taught the course, Karen Skeen. And um, so um, uh, then a one of the commentators, Lauren Lipner, uh, analyzed the data from a rupture and healing point of view, therapeutic oh. rupture. Nice. Mm-hmm. Plus also applied... Uh, Goldfried's principles of change mm-hmm. to what was happening. Okay. So here is this the same therapy can be looked at from a variety of uh, perspectives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, sort of a side point, I've, I've been listening to uh marv goldfried and alan francis have, have uh, yeah i I've, i track a few of those things that that's okay. an uh i mean i talk quite a bit to marv for the, my, during my presidency and and certainly know marv and i have some notions of alan francis so i get a sense of what they say but please proceed I okay and i saw you talking with uh marv and paul yeah yeah i did do that uh absolutely um so uh, they have a terrific one on schools of therapy. And um, uh, Marv, as you might know, is always very aware of how language seems to get in the way. Uh-huh. Because language, different languages can in some way be saying similar things, but they seem oh, different across the languages. <laughs> he gave an example of a recent book he um, uh, he reviewed for APA mm-hmm. his book manuscript looking at it, part of it was looking at the same case I think it was a borderline case uh, from th- three different theoretical perspectives mm. one was uh, emotion focused therapy one was mm-hmm. DBT more behavioral mm-hmm. one was psychoanalytic Uh and he said the authors agreed at the end once they looked at what they had Uh written that they pretty much agreed on their formulation it was focusing on the formulation they were Uh just using different languages Uh Uh so the languages um we we sort of made that exact case in a dissertation I supervised. Paula Sor, Paulina Sorbi, uh, she's now a psychologist, uh, a couple of years ago did a dissertation on borderline, uh, the concept of borderline, its history. Uh, we right. applied the UTOC lens uh, and you know did Young schema therapy, did DBT, did a number of other uh, you know uh, perspectives, and basically we're saying hey. Uh, you know, these different things are framing this in slightly different ways, but man, there's an enormous amount of overlap and there's a core coherence uh, to the claims that are being made uh, that we might be able to abstract and, you know, and and afford a, you know, common language that is both generalizable, but also rich and specifiable and affords a lot more coherence between the schools of thought instead of seeing them as really fundamentally competing structures. Yeah. Well, you should, uh, if you want to listen to uh, one of these, I, I highly recommend that because mm-hmm. it's called Schools of Schools of Therapy because 
Marv points out all the, as you know from his work, um, uh, he's a big advocate for common principles. Yep. And uh, what's common and coming to consensus. But he kind of outlines there all the reasons why this doesn't take place, all the mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. economic reasons. Mm -hmm. And the uh, he says, for example, a book publishers uh, need uh, to come out with new books mm. uh, because otherwise that that that's their business model and the mm -hmm. books keep um the the different theories keep bouncing off one another to produce mm -hmm. new books um and of course you can't really um uh as an academic progress unless you come up with new ideas you can't publish uh ideas unless they're new and in fact um uh unless they create dynamic tension and conflict mm -hmm. um, i i have a particular image of uh, uh i've gone to the abct conventions okay sure a number of years and uh, that's um, the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, right? Therapy, if yes. I'm getting that right. <laughs> let, let me do a little sidetrack on this. Um, it started out in the 1960s as AABT, Association for the Advancement of Behavior Therapy. Mm -hmm. It's very much into behavior therapy based on behaviorism. Which, by the way, at its foundational assumptions, anti-mentalistic. I like to point out. I mean, entire, as you mentioned earlier, the entire structure is observation-based. You can't get black box. Don't put concepts inside. We have to stay with what's observable, which means essentially the fundamental structure is anti-mentalistic at the level of its basic language and conceptual structure. So uh, that leads to the next point. There's a beautiful lead-in because this thing came along developed by a psychoanalyst whose name was Aaron Beck, called Cognitive Therapy. Who? I've never... <laughs> I don't know. Do I know that guy? I had some... I remember I met that guy once. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I now remember your connection. Uh, so Beck comes along. As you know, he was a psychoanalyst. Um, and there was this big battle in AABT. Because as you said, traditionally, cognitive behavior therapy um, is a contradiction in terms. Because the whole idea of behaviorism is to be anti-mentalistic. You can't use those terms. Even though, of course, when behaviorists wrote articles, they used language that had all sorts of they, they hope you understood what they were saying as you read it. Right. Right? right. <laughs> Whatever. Well, what is understand? Do I observe understanding? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Actually, I'll give you another little, I mean, you may know this also, but I'll throw this in for the audience. So 
in terms of different languages, I also like to make sure people know, you mentioned Beck's a psychoanalyst. He actually brings cognitive therapy to the psychoanalysts first. And it certainly could have emerged as an egoic form of psychoanalysis, yeah. just to focus on ego-based psychotherapy. And that's actually how he sort of initially placed it. So there could have been the cognitive dynamic or cognitive analytic fusion, but they kicked him out and they didn't, and he got frustrated. And then he realized he had to develop a method an empirical method. So he ran back, did his little lab thing and started building randomized controlled trials in the 1970s. And it is the methods-based thing that ultimately is going to create enough momentum to fuse the behaviors and the cognitives together. But they could have been fused. Uh, we could have had a cognitive dy yeah. dynamic fusion in the initial. In fact, that's where Beck initially saw it as being placed. Uh, but he got kicked out of there. Yeah, no, that's that's a so it's ego based, you know, just rational justifying stuff as opposed yeah. to focus on the deep dark conscious. That's essentially what he framed it as first. So all of this stuff is hysterical at one level. <laughs> Like yes, that, you know, the accidents of history and these schools and everything else. So anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. With so again, the, the uh, you know, cognitive behavior therapy is an oxymoron based on the history of behaviorism. It's a mentalistic, so anti-mentalistic therapy. Right. We're, 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 we're really, we're really organized. Yes. So I was uh, <clears throat> involved in uh, AABT when there was a big battle politically should we uh, merge with cognitive therapy and of course it wasn't just that it was cognitive it was also beck's credentials were still questionable because he came as an analyst not as a an academic uh, experimentalist right he's a medical doctor too psychiatrist medical doctor too at yeah that level. um so today we just take that for granted. Oh, CBT, you know, but it really, as you said, is is a uh, a marriage of convenience in a sense. Um, <clears throat> and so more pragmatics, was, <laughs> right? He was pointing out how there are all these other he called them systems factors in terms of the. Um, you know, you develop a school of therapy and you have uh, an association and you have conventions and um, and it's hard to think of dismantling those, but he's saying that the, the actual uh, <clears throat> phenomenon and transactions in therapy have a lot of commonality around these uh, principles. And what I found, I was looking back over those principles as you had framed them or listed them. And I thought it was really interesting that they <clears throat> are associated with these different traditions or different mm -hmm. theories, mm -hmm. the experiential, the behavioral, mm -hmm. the cognitive, <clears throat> psychoanalytic, and that um, Marv certainly didn't have that in mind when he came up with them, he sort of came up with them um, with his own framework of yep. thinking more descriptively. Uh -huh. um, uh, and yet they make the same point that you do, which is, well, what what Francis and, and Goldfrey keep talking about is uh, the idea of 
that that Marv is a cognitive behaviorist and Alan Francis was trained psychodynamically, but they both practice in an integrated way. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And <clears throat> that um, you need all the different um, traditions to practice most effectively, you need to draw on those different traditions. So uh -huh. they're saying that in this, you know, dialogue, yep. uh, Marv is reflecting that mm -hmm. in um, the principles of change. Yep. And in your <clears throat> uh, formal theory, you, I like to put it, you get from the Big Bang to these um, theories of psychotherapy. Uh -huh. And you show that there's a role and a meaning for each of them. It's not like <clears throat> someone just plucked this out of the blue. Sure. Really, um, they're facets. Uh -huh. They're facets of the reality. Uh -huh. And uh, by bringing in those facets in a, in a systematic way yep. to enhance your capacity to really have a pragmatic impact. Amen. Amen. And, and so just so people, some people will be familiar, but in case you're not, so what evolved out of you, you talk, I mean, before it was in you talk, um, was my unified theory lensing big bang all the way back and then honing in and putting the pieces together. Uh, and then what pops is the fifth branch on the tree here. Uh, which becomes character adaptation systems theory. Um, and essentially it says that there's the, you know, your nervous system is regulating the aging arena relationship. You're basically expending energy, uh, work energy to make difference. Um, and it gets a layered system to it. So the basic initial system is essentially a procedural system uh, works. We'll just do it simply through association and consequence to build in procedural action uh, that's in a particular context, get primed and released and association and consequence are really shaping this. It's not super conscious in what will become real, you know, it's a base. And, and so this becomes your habit system, uh, the basic habit system. And anyone can see this in terms of you do, do, you know, when you're first trying to tie your shoe, it's a nightmare. And then your system learns how to stimulus chain stuff together. And then after a while, you just release that pattern, you tie your shoe, you're not thinking about it at all. It's a base pattern, a set of associations on a schedule kind of reinforcement. Um, and we can really see, you look at the power of habit. Dunhig is a good, good example. He gives a good frame for that. Then you can move up and you have an online consciousness system, the center of what I would call mind two, which is online perceiving. I'm seeing you. I have drives in relation. I have then emotions, energized responses in this sort of global experience and for the therapy aspect of it, how we relate to our feelings as we see the world and feel the world is absolutely central. And the history of our learning and whether or not our experiential emotions are connected or disconnected uh, to our being is for the EFT, neo-humanistic, are you connected to your organismic valuing process or based on judging and secondary reaction, you split that off. And so that's the experiential system 
And then you move up into your primate system and you care about your attachments. Dan, do you like me? <laughs> Dan, do you feel, do we feel secure together? What's our power, love and freedom? And what are my, did my dad like me? You know, my, your dad, my dad was bald, is bald. You know, I see you a little, you know, hey, you know, what does that mean? Where are the internal working models? Uh, of course, modern psychodynamic theory centers the emotional system and the attachment theory. Paul Wachtel is clear, very clear about that. And then I like to jump to the top. What are we doing this whole time? What's the transcript of our little conversation here? Well, those are all justifications, propositional networks, and we're legitimizing schools of thought. And what's the right way of thinking? What? How do we make meaning and value? And how do I understand and interpret what you're doing in a propositional way? Well, that person side of us also has to navigate all these other primate sides. And then finally, hey, the defensive system is trying to keep equilibrium. Uh, and then if you go, if you have those five systems, you know, oh, the behaviors were tracking habits and the most base, that's why they did all the animal behavioral stuff. And if we control that, we can get a similar ground of laws. The humanists are tracking your emotional expression and the core of organismic valuing, like the experiential system, psychodynamic people are tracking both the attachment relationship system and the defense system, the cognitive and narrative existentialist people are talking the justificatory structures. Um, those aren't schools of thought. Now they're systems of adaptation. And now you just go like, well, like medicine, medicine doesn't have schools of the GI people aren't a school of thought relative to your circulatory system. They're just GI people because the gastro, that's the way to describe that organismic system of adaptation. Uh, the, the Utah says, let's we can transcend the schools if we were to talk uh, systems of adaptation. And we could see the four major schools of behaviorism, experiential, humanistic, psychodynamic, and cognitive uh, in those five systems of adaptation. Well, in that, I mean, that's a, a good summary of those. And on one hand, I think uh, you can argue that th there's a reason why those those um, uh, those four major theories in therapy have emerged, which is. Um, because that's part of the clinical reality. That's right. another thing that Francis and Goldfried uh -huh. say is, if you do enough of this clinical work, these things just, and, and you're open enough, these you're just hit by these things. So what you're saying is that the there's a reason why each of these theories had some traction because they were hitting one particular facet right. of it. Right. And I would say the nature of the adaptation sets up actually different kinds of strategies in many ways. Uh, and if you didn't have the whole map right away, it's actually really easy to see why the psychodynamic relational dimension merges one way, the behavioral merges another way. Um, so there, there are different aspects of these which will pull in different ways, especially if you don't have sort of a holistic map uh, and to start with, which obviously we didn't. Uh, but this grants certain kinds of legitimacy. It enables us to see. And in fact, as I did in my presidency, as you know, it, you know, my presidency when I was as a CEPI president last year, was the common core was the theme. And that was essentially me and Marv Goldfried and Jeffrey Smith and a few other people saying, yes, there is a common core. Marv's principles, the common factors, the structures at the epicenter of the maladaptive problems and the kinds of processes, therapeutic, reverse those. We all agreed on that. And we could then see that there were these all these rich traditions, and Paul Wachtel was very concerned that if you're like you reduce it down to the simple, then okay, I'll come into 
you know, uh, all right, I learned the first day. Well, okay, try to get hope and, you know, make expectations and turn your problems around. All right, am I done? I mean, you know, I'm now, <laughs> I learned therapy, right? That was Paul, I'm being a little facetious, but this is his critique. There's no richness and nuance with the simple common core. And then I argue, yeah, because there's these rich traditions. And so if I want to learn the defensive system, I need to go in intensive short-term psychodynamic Davin Lou, and he'll teach me an enormous amount of stuff that gives me a different lens than a behavioral tradition. And, and we don't want to lose that. Uh, and we, and so I have sort of the mountain ranges talking to each other to honor Paul. And then my vision is actually, well, there's a, there is the zoomed out big bang vision that actually you can box in and allow us to be framed, allow the different schools of thought, their richness and specificity, allow us to be anchored to a common core. I call that a coherent integrated pluralism. Um, and, and that to me is the kind of, you know, psychotherapy integration collective milieu that I think affords both the generalization, the coherence and the unique specialization that keeps the conversation going as Paul was uh, trying to, you know, emphasize it needed to be. We do not just want to reduce us to, you know, oh yeah, and still hope and you're, you're in good shape <laughs> or whatever. So that's the, that's the way I made sense out of it. It's really interesting that uh, Paul and, and Marv are two of the founders totally. of SEPI and they have such different uh, mindsets Mm -hmm. I've seen that in a number of instances where where Marv uh, and in some ways I resonate with Marv on this. Um, he's straightforward and he sees these commonalities and gets uh, concerned about people <clears throat> um, seeing complexity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> where it seemed pretty straightforward. And Paul mm -hmm. is always aware of um, uh, different temperament and of different levels of consciousness. And uh, so that's typical of the two of them. And I, I think it's a great, uh, it, it's wonderful that the two of them um, play such an important role in SEPI because that dialogue is a very important one to have exactly uh in fact i you know a little while ago i did this conference consilience conference yeah uh, and john berbeke was my keynote speaker and he was given a very i think a pretty sophisticated talk on philosophy and knowledge and reality uh and one of his fundamental principles was that both at the level of reality and our knowledge about it is this fundamental dialectic there's a generalizing reductive tendency, which we need, which is go to the bottom and see how everything is alike, okay? Like everything is quarks, okay? Or everything is quantum fields. And that's a beautiful thing that then says, well, the reality is quantum fields. And at one level, it's a super powerful thing to say, but it also means that you and I and Marv and, and we're all quantum fields. <laughs> and so now what? Right. So there's no difference between us. And so he was saying there's a dialectical tension between generalizability uh, that that groups together and difference that enables us to to know about reality through difference. So we need both similarity and difference in a constructive opponent process dialectic. And that's how I see Paul and uh, Marv holding this issue where Marv is pulling us to the general why do we get to the most uh, conclusive, most simple way to say the most things? And Paul's like, well, wait a minute, you lose a truckload of nuance if all you do is that. And if we can do what's the general and what's the nuance, 
uh, and hang with both Paul and Marv on this issue. I think we do all right. <laughs> well, that's sort of like the dialectic between uh, the case study, mm. the individual case, and generalizations about yep. psychotherapy. Because, because as you get drawn into the case, there's so much specificity and contextuality. Um, you can sort of, whenever you try to generalize, you, you you can put on your Paul Wachtell hat and say, oh, that's doing violation to this, that, and the other thing. Totally. And uh, <clears throat> Marv says, well, through my glasses, I see this. Right. These are the commonalities. Totally. Oh, this is just someone's language for doing this. <laughs> So I think there's that dialectic, and as you imply, it's very important to not lose sight of the dialectic and to have that sort of going in the background. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I discovered, you know, in terms of where my journey took me, similar to yours, <laughs> I think, in some ways. So I'm learning behavioral science methodology and 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 framing and i'm well obviously you have to you have to operationalize and then generalize and then you have to see quantitative relation okay that but as opposed to just my impression as a folk person making sense out of work yeah. so i'm taught you know i go through a undergrad program and they first teach me method and you have to learn method first and then you can start learning the subject matter because you know if you're just a folk person you come up with stuff but you don't really have data and then I really, you know, you abstract across the data, you see the correlation matrix patterns, okay? And I, was like, and I bought that model, right? Uh, that that was the way it would work. And then you get into the actual clinic room, okay? And I'm not dealing with clouds of variables, okay? Good. You know, now if I do want to make an actuarial prediction, like Neil put in, said, I want to see where are you going to be in 25 days? Actually, I do want to use actuarial clinic, and, and then I'll do that. But if I want to relate to you, I can't relate to, I don't know how to relate to you as a, as a, as I don't a relate to you. I don't collect, relate. There's a bunch of cloud variables that are in here and you're different parts. There's the depressive neurotic part of you and there's the hopeful part of you and you're over there and it's not you at all, obviously. Right. Um, so what I, this is in retrospect, but what's actually needed is where we have the aggregate cloud variable stuff. And then you have the actual qualitative experience. You need a generalizable framer right? You need a generalizable frame of, well, human nature in general as persons with problems, this is the basic set, you know, of variables, you know, and, and that's what was missing. And then I, and with the big bang zoom back, I was like, oh, you're an organism. Okay. So I have that cluster and you're an actual animal, a specific kind of animal. You're a primate, you know, and you have investment structures. That's what you're, as we sit here together, your entire system's engaged in work effort, you know, as you nod, right, you're, as you scratch your head, you're investing as a behavioral investing being. You and I have influence dynamics, meaning we relate to each other, or you're tense over here, or connected over here, we're doing that. And the whole basic way we interact, which is so different, if my dog were around here, would not be following this conversation, you know, the justification dimension. Uh, and I then found that, and I was like, well, okay, yeah, I can actually place these extreme almost lawful like variables, not in a quantitative lawful, but in a conceptual lawful frame. And that's what was missing. And I needed then the structure of investment, influence and justification, what I call Jai dynamic structure. And through there, I could see, okay, this is why we're likely to get patterns. And we definitely need patterns for actuarial prediction. But we need to bounce those patterns through a model so that I can actually place myself 
in the case of Maggie and be like, why is Maggie having the problems that she's having as a unique individual? And how's my unique individuality in this unique particular context going to actually come together? And how do I bounce off of both the general model and a variable aggregate in the unique here and now? Uh, and that's what I argue is basically missing. We don't have that. And that's, you know, we're sort of lost without it. Because if you don't have the this generalizable frame, it's just the, just chaos between the individual particular. You know, you can't pull the what is the specificity relative to the generality in a way that makes coherent sense. So you talk is trying to say, hey, actually, we can do a lot better uh, than sort of... <laughs> method-based chaos in the field of scientific psychology and say, actually, here's one model of what, you know, we are as persons and primates. It's interesting. The, uh, uh, what I taught, I taught in a PsyD program. Uh -huh. Rutgers PsyD, great PsyD program, folks. One yes. of the leading with the Donna, Donna Peterson, a leading PsyD model in the, in the country. I've always looked at that in a beautiful thing. So can you go ahead? So in, in, since it was this ID program, we had permission, justification to immerse students in clinical work. So they were grounded in the clinical work, and then they would learn about uh, research and theories, etc. We had a parallel, not in the school, the Graduate School of Applied Professional Psychology, but in a separate uh, arts and sciences department of psychology. We had a PhD program, uh -huh. clinical PhD, also highly respected. But you enter that PhD program. First, in, in this ID program, we had like um, about 20 students a year. Uh -huh. So probably similar to yours. Um, and they had community and such. In the, in the uh, <clears throat> PhD program, there may be three or four students a year. Uh -huh. And they uh, apprentice themselves to a faculty member. Yep. And from day one, the message is, when you leave here um, uh, to get an academic job, you have to have this list of publications. That's so right. you start figuring out how you can have publications uh using as you <laughs> said the variable cloud you know what's going to get me published and <clears throat> relatively little clinical experience relatively the clinical immersion because the whole focus is on this other getting these publications and it's hard to publish it is. <clears throat> as i know very well uh uh, in qualitative journals and in case study journals. And it's hard to get an impact factor in case study journals. Um, so <clears throat> clinicians in in PhD programs, and, and this was the what I had, I had very little clinical experience. My clinical experience was completely detached from my academic experience. Uh-huh. And it's putting those two together, as you said. It's it's how do you bridge those? I want to mention something else you said um, in the context of uh, schools of uh, uh, a therapy notion, and that's comparing 
the arena of psychotherapy with um, medical practice and medical specialties. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, um, if you are a GI specialist, gastrointestinal, uh -huh. you're going to uh, deal with people who have, who present with gastrointestinal problems. Uh -huh. And there are tests to see if there's structural problems. Let's say uh -huh. you can do an x-ray and see that there's a blockage here in the small yep. intestine. Um, what would, in, in, in your view, in Utah's view, what would be, how would <clears throat> psychotherapy, the psychotherapy field be organized uh -huh. That would be parallel to uh, <clears throat> medical specialties. That's a great question. Um, you know, there it's a little complicated in the sense that the the nature of psychotherapy, as you know, uh, the, to me, the common core of psychotherapy is the relational process unfolding. Uh, so, at the uh, the nat and the nature of that as being healing. Um, is such that the the common core of psychotherapy is far more uh, overlapping than the common core of medical interventions. Okay, so in the sense that you know, common core of medical interventions is like, well, sometimes I take a pill for my migraine, and sometimes I get my appendix out, and sometimes, uh, and that is because the nature of the biophysical relative to the psychosocial animal human world. Is, is has its particular sets of dynamic interrelations and and the nature of intervention and therapy except for the world and all this other stuff so so there will be a lot more commonality to, of of health service psychologists in the core of what psychological therapy is in my estimation uh the, it's a much bigger common core and therefore also less uh, direct specialization so clearly there'll be some immediate specialization or differentiation. For example, in the program I teach, we want to differentiate child school family therapists from adolescent and individual uh, adult therapists and couples. So I'm, I do adolescent and adult and the nature of the kinds of relational problems are very different than a five-year-old. Okay. So if a five-year-old, you want to do parents in the context of a school setting, in the context of multiplicity, talking, gaining insight into the justificatory nature of a five-year-old, okay, is not really where you're going to leverage. Uh, however, a 25-year-old, I enter through the system of justification and operate there. So that's an example of where the differentiation would be. And then there are a lot of other particular kinds of problems that are obviously more oriented towards one or the other systems. So for example, if I you come to me and you want to help stop drinking, and we do assessment and actually your relationship with the wife's pretty good. You're, you're about ready to change into a new house. You're just retired. You're drinking a little too much. And we can say, hey, well, what are the triggers? And, and you know, what's the stage of change that we might want to use? What are the habits that we might want to use? This is my, how you might feel. But since you don't have a trauma history, we're pretty much going to be able to try to focus on the engineering structures of stimulus response chaining. Okay. And be, you know, if you come to me and you were abused as a kid, you know, and you you and your wife are having problems, you got problems with your first wife and your second wife, now your third wife, okay, um, 
and there are all these different therapies you've had for a little while and I do an assessment and it's like, okay, that attachment system that, you know, that attachment system is shattered, you know, with an enormous amount of defense, enormous amount of polarization. In fact, that's what we argued, a borderline organized structure is an attachment system with extreme polarization and a destructive opponent process, okay? Meaning like, you know, I want to be near you and I don't want to be near you. I want to control you, I want you to control me. I need love, I don't care about love, these kinds of issues. That's where the thing goes with intense affect, with an identity, with all different parts that can justify in context, but then it's a polar opposite a little bit later or a polarizing in a way that's ultimately maladaptive. So now what do I need as a, so I, I'm much more of the kind of guy uh, based on my training and history is I like, and would much more like to work with the second case. Okay. Uh, and then my knowledge of your relationship system, my knowledge of justification and defense, my knowledge of development, my knowledge, all of those, those systems of adaptation, relational, emotional, uh, experiential, justificatory, and the nature then of my skill set to enter that, to have you project all over me, love me at first, and then hate me, and then have rupture and repair, and then understand that process. Well, that's a very different than a stage of change to help you, you know, in the first case where things are going pretty well and you got a habit you want to break. Uh, so that would be an example where they're the basic traditions and what they orient to and the realities that they're plugging give rise to a lot of different kinds of specializations. So there certainly is some overlap and parallel. The difference is the nature of psychotherapy as a kind of intervention versus the way medicine works is also makes it, you know, there's definitely, it's a unique different class. Uh, so the overlap at the core, I think is much, much greater. Um, but of course, and you know, uh, so I'll pause there and see. Well, I'd like to argue as I think about it and as you've just been describing it, that the parallels are are pretty striking. Um, so if there is, so if I uh, I go to a dermatologist once mm -hmm. a year, okay. that dermatologist looks at my scalp, your mm -hmm. father's scalp. <laughs> yeah, he's like, hey, I'm having all sorts of transference. Yeah, that's exactly what he does. <laughs> so she looks at my scalp, which is my most vulnerable part mm -hmm. of accumulated sun over the years and she looks <clears throat> at whether there are abnormalities mm -hmm. and then if if there is an abnormality they can uh, take it off in different ways one is this most technique so it's all very specific um that is a discrete specialty mm -hmm. and i would say uh, that's parallel to someone who has a public speaking phobia without oh. other <clears throat> major difficulties in their life. Hundred percent. Describe. Okay, then <clears throat> we have um, uh, <clears throat> someone who comes in with. Um, chronic pain mm -hmm. and you, you can uh, do, let's say they have back pain. Yep. You can do an X-ray mm -hmm. and you say, oh, here's structural problems. Mm -hmm. But then someone had the brilliant idea, well, let's do X-rays of people who don't have back pain. 
And what they found is that there were structural problems there also. So it's not just the structural problems. And uh, I know through, through uh, friends and such, um, with back pain, there's, there's medication, there's shots, there's hypnotherapy, there's acupuncture, there's, there's alternative medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't go to, when, when I go to that dermatologist, Mm-hmm. She just takes out the uh, if it if it uh, is is not a major problem that needs an operation. She just takes out the liquid nitrogen and burns it away. Okay, yep. nothing could be simpler mm-hmm. or more straightforward. I won't say right. simpler. <clears throat> um, but the issue with the pain is. Um, okay, you have all these different ways to deal with the pain. And then, of course, some of the ways you deal with them have these side effects. So you take this medication that helps Uh with the pain, but it leads to liver problems or you become Uh addicted. Um, And so someone who was a chronic pain specialist um, has to bring a more holistic totally. approach to it. Hundred percent. Yeah. So and, and indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's see what where are we with the parallel now? Um, there are those. Another thing at at my age, a lot of people have operations for cataracts. Uh-huh. <clears throat> That's very straightforward. You look, you do an operation, you see that the the lens is uh, is clouded. Uh-huh. And um, you go through a specific surgical procedure. Uh-huh. Uh, tell them to take all these drops afterwards. It's all very discreet. So I could see people specializing in the parallel to therapy in in particular problems, uh-huh. which you've laid out. Um, But in some ways, when you when you get to the more comp- let's say the the borderline, um, partly the way that you outlined it, um, you have to approach it from from this integrative, multi dimensional way. Mm-hmm. Um, would you propose that there could be <clears throat> one way to train people for treating borderline problems? Um, I would propose this. Uh, my proposal. We should probably move towards seeing it. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give this, and then if there are anything final that you want to say as we begin to wrap up, so we can great conversation. Yeah. We can okay. begin to uh, move towards the close here. So. Um, you know, my take is that we should have the common, what I call the common core. So there's a way to general, and, and you can basically start with a skilled and relatively rich, but, you know, articulation of your capacity to enter what Marv Gold is talking, Mark Goldfrey is talking about, okay, at the level of psychotherapy. Um, and that 
for and and I believe, like I said, the nature of psychotherapy is it's a much more general, open, principle and process based kind of intervention than uh, at least when we compare it to medicine. So you know the great psychotherapy debate by Wampel, right, and others. Okay. Yeah. And basically, so now if we're going to do the, the contrast with medicine, which I'm a big believer in also. So the main plan I wanted to make is that psychological therapy shouldn't be primarily organized by schools of thought. It should be organized by human psychological science. Okay. And human psychological science can now, at least from a Utah perspective, be organized to give us a model of the human minded animal structure that gives us the domains of it and clarifies it similar to the different systems of the bi bi human biology gives for the various elements. And thus medicine is grounded in human biology rather than schools of thought based on the different systems, okay? So at that level, that's a parallel I wanna draw and say, hey, psychological therapy can be grounded in human psychological science, okay? The five systems of adaptation show why that's at least conceptually reasonable, okay? However, I'm also quick to say that doesn't mean I do want to do a strong analogy with the way in which medicine operates as a particular kind of intervention relative to psychotherapy, at least in the sense that if I read Bruce Wampalt's argument about the great psychotherapy debate and I look at how I operate in the world, okay, I believe that principles and processes of psychosocial relating are at the fundamental core, uh, core of what's generally known to be therapeutic about psychotherapy. I mean, and once you take that out, okay, I think that's a general factor like uh, Frank talked about in persuasion and healing across all healing professionals, you're even your dermatologist. If your dermatologist was cruel and, 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 you know, mean, you may not go back and therefore your impact would not be great. She's got to be sort of kind and, and sensitive at some level. So there's minimal levels of health but her demeanor and everything isn't the same as with a borderline psychotherapy kind of therapy. You know, the, the nature and richness of the healing environment is very different. And psychotherapy, then the argument is there's a big skill in a psychosocial healing environment process that's at the core for me of psychological therapy. Okay. What I would then argue is that we should delineate what that is. Like here's a common core, and this becomes the bona fide control of psychotherapy in general. So there's a generic, and indeed, you know, I built ComMO. So I wanna respect you. I wanna show that I can speak your language. I care about you. You and I can develop good therapeutic flow. We could talk about a trench maladaptive patterns that you have, neurotic loops. And I wanna be curious, accepting, loving, compassionate, and motivated toward valued states of being, okay? That's, that's basically it. <laughs> and then my skill in jazzing with you when we talk. That's what I would call the common core of psychotherapy, okay? Now, then the question would be, at, at, do you get specialized? The issue would be to run psychotherapy the way I would do it in a real evidence base would be everybody gets the common core and then you build therapies. If you're a real expert on borderline, you build therapies that do better than the common core. As you know, we don't have standardized control. You know, you can sky weightless control, you know, super annoying people with loud music talking to you control. <laughs> Any number of things can be a control. What I'm arguing is that there's a very good, there should be a good control. And then I do believe, like, for example, I would guess a really well done um, family systems inner uh, and, and interdisciplinary approach to anorexia, which is a very complicated condition. Okay. You get, a, I bet you get good specialized knowledge there and you do better 
than the common core COMMO with a particular with a family system based treatment for anorexia. Okay, and I think in and there would be certain things you would do with borderline personality that would be better, you know, in relation. Uh, and so then people could develop and they would say, hey, this is then a specialized variant for this particular kind of pattern problem that you really should know. You know, OCD has got uh, probably certain kinds of things that really would, you know, and then public speaking in a more simplistic way. So to me, what the issue would be is psychotherapy has a much more broader generalized common core than medicine. Medicine, hey, be good bedside manner, be kind. This is actually, let me talk to you. Let me understand you. Let me show empathy. Let me pull this out. Let me have a basic understanding of maladaptive. That's actually much broader than it is. Okay. That's why you train at a master's level. And that's why everyone sort of does therapy in a very similar way. <laughs> I, mean, I do CBT for everything. You know, what, medicine doesn't work like that. Nobody come and say, I, I prescribe this pill for all, everybody that comes in. I, this is the pill I give them. I mean, it doesn't work that way. But there would be then through the common core differentiation, I think, and, and then we could actually build cumulative systems that have real evidence bases because you're not playing the control theory game anymore, uh, but you know what the standardized control is. And if you beat the common core, then that's a real evidence base. And I certainly think there'd be many patterns of problems that would beat the common core. And then we'd have a developed specialized evidence-based systems of approach to psychotherapy uh, that would be matching the intervention after taking out the general. Actually, the... Uh... <clears throat> There are some benchmarks that can be used, which are, and uh, some people have done that with, um, in the case studies, they've, they've said, well, here is uh, this OCD case study that I did. Uh -huh. And this was, uh, this, this person I have in mind is Paul Clement, who developed his own system of uh, change scores so mm -hmm. that he could compare mm -hmm. his change scores with the change scores uh, in RCTs. Nice, okay, good. And actually, Jacqueline Persons has also done that with uh, depression, with mm -hmm. depression, where she has taken her private practice cases, mm. uh, say 25 cases, and used the same measures Yep. Nice. In the RCTs. Right. That's a good. That's a good example of a. So exactly. RCTs do do serve that function. They, yeah. One of the complexities, as I think about it, and I do think this is a very productive kind of conversation to think about the parallel between medicine and psychotherapy. In medicine, you have a uh, uh, a physical op uh, object that mm -hmm. occupies space. And so uh, you can um, take one of these that has stopped functioning and you can have medical students cut it open and you'll see the heart in pretty much the same place. Mm -hmm. um, it's not so straightforward with, with the mind. And so some of the, the parallel with medicine, uh, you know, when you say, well, why can't psychology be like medicine? They're, they're, they're just brighter, more successful, more effective. <clears throat> it's a different thing. And some people have said, oh yes, the solution will be the brain. 
and we'll, uh, we'll reduce psychology to the brain and then we'll have something physical. And we, we've already said th those are two different levels of that's, that's right. reality. And mm -hmm. so um, that is one of the, one of the problems. But on the other hand, just even though it's a physical system, the body is so complex and it interacts like long COVID, you know, what mm -hmm. the hell oh, is right. COVID? Right. So I think that um, part of the challenges we have in psychotherapy are <clears throat> uh, should be put in the context of a lot of things in medicine are very daunting also. There are yep. those, you know, just liquid nitrogen on my scalp but there are there's uh, chronic pain. There's long COVID. There's of there's uh, why do people with the same back structural problems have such different pain? Um, oh. And then there are these intermediate um, uh, interventions like um, hypnosis where you've got the body and and uh and the mind somehow coming together yep. so i i i just think i know we've got to come to closure that i find looking at the parallels between the two in an open way as we've been doing mm -hmm. is a very productive way of thinking about this um really systems problem that marv has talked about of how to best organize the different approaches in psychotherapy in a way that yep. is intellectually honest and scientifically grounded um, and takes account of um, the social political nature of the participants. And you've been, you know, you been working in CEPI on all of that. So uh -huh. it's kind of fascinating. It is, you know, and I mean, you know, the basic, what I would say, I totally agree. And I'm loving the conversation. Uh, so you got biology and medicine and we're then, okay. And this really human, human biology and medicine and human psychology. Uh, and then I would also encourage us to bookend that even further. You mentioned, you know, these different realms, matter, life, mind, culture, Right. And then you go down even beneath and say, well, OK, my daughter is a biomedical engineer studying to become one. You know, so she had to learn engineering, which is then the jump from matter and physics into engineering, then up into like, OK, so she's sort of like an engineer and a medicine bridge. OK, so you can think about, well, engineering, what how do they apply physics to get pragmatic change? OK, and then what's the relationship between engineering and medicine, which is trying to apply biology to get pragmatic change? And then you have psychotherapy is trying to do that. And then social work, you know, what are you doing up here, right? At the level of, you know, you're, and so and so then you can then see if you do this level of course, uh, correlation. So there's us and psychotherapy and there's a, wait, let's bring in medicine. Wait, let's bring in engineering. Let's bring in social work above. And then when you put it out that way, it's like, okay, yeah, what is concrete? What's the level of analysis that we be needing be tend to? What kind of interventions work? And you see, there are a lot of parallels in some ways. And then, of course, those realms behave in so different ways. There's a lot of massive differences, too. 
Um, and so if we can see across the realms and say, well, a social worker is trying to create a context where disadvantaged individuals socially have access to policies and resources. So she's trying to pull access to policies and resources in the socio-ecological system to channel individuals there. You know, you and I are looking at human mindedness and justification, you know, at the level of how you agent arena relation and justifying at the human individual level. The biologist is coming in. Well, what are your cells, genes and organ systems? The engineer is like, well, how do you sit in that chair? <laughs> and so you roll back and how is it comfortable versus not, you know, at the level of the basic physics of the of all of that. So so to me, these kinds of if we, as long as we zoom back and then do that, we can see both. Again, with a the theme, there's a generalizing theme and a differentiation theme and holding those in nice dialectical tension. I think getting back to the pragmatic uh, uh, aspect, <clears throat> I view theories as conceptual tools. Mm -hmm. And so throughout what you just described at different levels and different situations, I think what's at the heart of it is the pragmatism mm -hmm. is uh, can you bring those theories, those tools to help a particular kind of problem in a particular yep. situation? And um, uh, I think different tools for different kinds of problems and tools can be perfected. Uh, and we shouldn't fall in love with our tools. We should fall in love with what our tools can do. All right. The value of the tools is really uh, in what they, the problems they can solve and the goals that they they can accomplish. Um, so there, there is a, you know, when you, when you uh, step way back to me, it's also, it's kind of the, the nomological net, you know, where is the, uh, uh, where are the constructs and how do they relate to the observations? Um, and uh, I, I think you've done a terrific job really with trying to make sense of all this because it really is uh, quite challenging. And uh, I remember, I think you were interviewing for a job at Rutgers and and uh, you had just finished the postdoc with yep. uh, that. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of fascinating what your experience was. Hmm because here was this strange situation with a psychoanalyst who became an experimental researcher yeah. and was manipulating this experimental research so he could publish yeah. and violence to the data, to the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> starting out as a psychoanalyst who had no commitment to that. Uh, and then you're uh, sort of going behind the scenes to make the data look the way it did, knowing that it was it was uh, the Wizard of Oz, really. Um, so it's it's kind of fascinating to see how that was all 
um, embodied in that experience that you had. Totally. It may be very suspicious of the commitment to methods and how commitments and methods create pragmatic goals like get publication and advance yeah. brand name psychotherapy, which then trap us in a maladaptive pragmatic way, right? Which we need to be very aware of. And that's what that is part of where my commitment, it, it was happened before I got to Beck, but it just showed me we do, we need to find a path, right? Uh, and this would be Mark Goldfrey kind of that. We need to find a path out of gurus. We need to find a path out of schools. We need to find a path out of methodological fundamentalism. Uh, we need to be clear about what we're doing in the here and now. We need to be clear about what the impact is on community, on society, you know, and think pragmatically about how we can be good ancestors rather than just get good impact factors so that we get good jobs. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that to me is what, you know, so. All right. Well, well let me just know. make a final comment then. Because uh, it's a good lead in. I think that, in a sense, our common core is the individual case uh -huh. mm. and the the actual transactions uh -huh. of that individual case, because it all comes down to clients and therapists interacting and whether the results of that are valuable according to certain mm -hmm. criteria such as where the client feels that they've been helped yep. and in some ways um one of the nice aspects of this whole field of psychotherapy is there is well there's all this tremendous diversity of thought and such theoretically in the end it's you and the client you right. know back and forth Yep. And what's happening. So that's why I I really have a passion for the case study because it it kind of captures the reality. You can have all the totally. Totally. That's that is the pragmatic ground that, that brings us all together. The ground. It's the pragmatic yeah. ground that gives us all together. Good. So let me just end by thanking you again for uh, this opportunity. This was great fun for me. I'm glad. And um for your contribution to the journal, because you you took the challenge of showing how you can put these two things together, all these uh, constructs that the floating in the air in the nomological net, and tie them down to <clears throat> this individual woman who was suicidal, mm -hmm. really had major, major, major difficulties. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, with the community. And thank you for sharing with me. It was a, you know, it's a good opportunity for me to get clear. We're fellow travelers, I think, in a in a very similar way across the arc of this discipline and and the pragmatic work we do and the theoretical and philosophical work. So it's really been a joy, and I appreciate you coming along and sharing your wisdom with us. It's been great. Okay, thanks so much. Absolutely.